0: Well, hello. It's good to have you with us for another episode of the Cadbury Conversations podcast. My name is Andrew Davis. I direct the Edward Cadbury Centre for the Public Understanding of Religion at the University of Birmingham. I'm talking to you today from a very sunny Sheffield, and I'm talking to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Marion Mahmood. Hi,
1: everyone. Um, I'm talking to you all from the wonderful Tumbling Hills um, outskirts of Herefordshire, surrounded by nothing but sheep, which is wonderful, but quite isolating.
0: Could be worse. It could be. There are lots of worse things to be surrounded by than sheep. We have a very big issue to talk about today. The issues of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia have become a huge challenge for the UK's two major political parties over the last few weeks and months. It seems that whatever they try and do, whatever attempts they try and make to resolve these issues, both the Conservatives and Labour, are still dogged by accusations that one of them is Islamophobic and the other is anti-Semitic. But Mariam, this is uh, the topic that you did your PhD research on, of course. So um, why is it that these two issues are back on the agenda with such prominence, do you think?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think what's important to acknowledge is, or even question about this, is had they truly ever left the scene, you know, they may have just been lying latent. And in order to understand uh, the dynamic between the two and how it's manifest in our society today, I think it's really important to look at history and what history tells us about the rise of global populism and indeed um, the heightened uh, sense of Islamophobia and um, anti-Semitism in the 20th century, for instance, you know, recent history. And with that in mind, I thought it would be a good idea to explore the topic a bit further um, by speaking to the eminent scholar, Professor Ivan Kalmar, who is Professor of Anthropology at University of Toronto. So I sat down to speak with Professor Kalmar about the issues of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that are unfortunately rapidly increasing in our um, world today.
2: Our guest today is one of the world's leading experts on antisemitism and Islamophobia. Someone who I consider to be a mentor of mine, Professor Ivan Kalmar, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. Professor Kalmar has written extensively on the topic of religious prejudice, with particular focus on East Central Europe. Professor Kalmar, thank you so much. It's such an honour to have you on our show today.
3: Uh, Thank you for inviting me. It's an honour to be on it.
2: How do we make sense of all that is going on around us? Racial and religious prejudice are certainly not new phenomena. This hatred that we see manifest in front of us, was it lying latent? And if so, what are the factors that have brought it to the fore in, in recent times?
3: well that's an excellent and very complicated question uh yes uh what we see the the prejudice the racism the islamophobia the anti-semitism that we see today certainly uh, uses a language that has developed over centuries and i have uh done quite a bit of work on tracing the joint image of the muslim and the jew in western in the western christian imagination and uh, always islamophobia and anti-semitism have been related it, it's not just hatred because sometimes muslims and jews appeared as kind of curious outsiders and Uh, sometimes they've been viewed even with some sort of exoticizing, romantic, uh, with a romantic approach, but a lot of it has been negative towards Jews and Muslims. There has been in Christianity this opposition between the law and love and that the Old Testament God is the God of law, but once the Trinity manifests itself and Jesus uh, appears, then God, I I, I hope this doesn't sound disrespectful, but God evolves, the Old Testament God evolves from one who stresses the law to one who stresses love. And the Jews didn't uh, come on board with this. The the Jews are those who who thought that the Old Testament was enough, Uh according to the view, not my view. So from the beginning, Jews were associated with money right. uh, also. So they're associated with legalism and money.
1: Right. That's uh, very, yeah. very interesting.
3: Yeah. So when Islam appeared, there, it was misunderstood and Christians um, imagined that Muslims were sometimes that they were heretics, Mm -hmm. sometimes that they were pagans, and sometimes that they were Jews. Mm. Or not that they were Jews, but that they were um, Judaizers, that they sympathized with uh, Judaism. Mm -hmm. And some medieval texts suggest that uh, Muhammad wanted to go back to the law of Moses. Mm so there there was, from the very beginning of Islam, this association of uh, Jews, mm-hmm. and of course, that's also because both Judaism and Islam come from the the Middle East, True. and both were kind of seen as oriental yeah. uh, religions that came to to europe. so So in that sense, Islamophobia came out of anti-Semitism. Mm.
2: Now that that's fascinating and there's a lot to unpack here, um, but I think what's really heightened my curiosity is when you spoke about, especially in modern day Christianity, this idea of love and, you know, Christ as all compassionate, Christ the Redeemer, we hear these things often and certainly it seems miles apart from the hatred that we see in front of us, you know, we, we hear people use the term Judeo-Christian as as a symbolic group that needs to be preserved. And, and now, in fact, especially that um, terminology, considering that it is has it has been hijacked by particular far-right extremists uh, when it comes to them excluding or um, demonizing and targeting Muslims, as well as Jews for that matter, which is quite ironic. Um, Now, why is it that we have this conflict, this tension or a contradiction, rather, um, especially when it comes to contemporary times, discussing Christianity, if it's all about love, why is it that we see this hatred?
3: I think that uh, Judeo-Christian is a a very loaded term with an interesting history, but uh, Christian love, if... Uh, It is, is, as you say, is contradicted by the actions and policies of many people who say that they are Christians. So I'm thinking uh, in my focus on East Central Europe, Mm -hmm. uh, Viktor Orban would be a very good example in Hungary, or the uh, Polish government would be a very good example and across the world, uh, perhaps Bolsonaro in yeah. Brazil, and, uh, and also maybe not Trump himself so much, but the uh, evangelical Christians, many of whom uh, support him. You have to ask how it is that they uh, feel that they can be so negative about uh, other human beings, and does that not contradict the message of christ but i think what we have to ask is what do they mean by christian yes and, uh, and i think what they mean by christian is not uh christian morality uh but their national christian white mm. uh identity. and so uh in in hungary and in poland and in the u.s Hmm. I think uh, non-Christian can mean not white. Right. Typically in Poland and Hungary, it's a way to exclude uh, migrants that never really wanted to come hmm. there anyway, but who the European Union ordered those countries to accept and they refused to.
2: Interestingly, this leads me to my next question. Um, So we spoke a bit about North America, and you yourself are based in Canada, to be precise. Yet, um, you know, you you do look at uh, the USA under the Trump administration in in your work, and and obviously um, the Obama days as well. Um, And, of course, your regional specialism or focus has also been on East Central Europe. Just wondering... What are the main similarities and key differences in the expression of anti-Semitism as well as Islamophobia in North America as opposed to East Central Europe?
3: So the way that politicians have picked up on on, on Islamophobia Mm. as a tool to become popular with the public when the public feels unjustly threatened by either terrorism or migration. Muslim migration, politicians whip it up into an issue that can help them. But then they have the issue of what to do about anti-Semitism, because like I said, wherever Islamophobia pops up, anti-Semitism has always popped up, and that's the case also today. But in order for politicians to become respectable enough to enter the mainstream and still draw on this heritage of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, Mm -hmm. they have to take out the anti-Semitism. And they have to uh, say that they are not anti-Semitic. Often they will express great support for Israel, Mm And then that will give them the excuse to use Islamophobia without, uh, with plausible deniability that they're sort of general racists. Mm-hmm. They, they will say that they're not Islamophobic, but if you look at what they're saying, they're Islamophobic. Mm. Right? Yeah. So, so there's a difference between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, uh, in that anti-Semitism is only acceptable to the, Fringe neo-Nazi fascist right, Mm. but not the mainstream Mm -hmm. anti and Islamophobes. Mm. So the mainstream anti-Semitism and Islamophobes have to put the anti-Semitism away. Mm. Of course, it pops up all the time.
1: Mm.
3: And uh, if we look at at the Soros plot, you know, the idea that George Soros is trying to run the world. Then we can see very much what I have in mind, because it's okay to for Orban or for Trump, which they do, to blame George Soros for the evils as they see them of mm-hmm. the world. Uh, but also but they don't stress the fact that George Soros is Jewish. George Soros is a, um, an American uh, financier of Hungarian Jewish origin, Mm -hmm. and he's put billions of dollars into his Open Society Foundation. Mm -hmm. And the Open Society Foundation funds NGOs and other institutions, especially in Europe, but across the world. Uh, And those institutions support such things as uh, human rights, uh, uh, basically liberal democratic uh, values. Mm. And for this, and this is a fact, uh, but this fact that George Soros has supported many liberal initiatives is used by both the fringe right and the mainstream nationalists to suggest that George Soros is actually putting his money everywhere and is trying to manipulate the world to his ends, Inclu- he's he's been blamed for anything from the financial crisis in Malaysia yeah. to the fall of Mugabe in Zimbabwe,
1: yeah,
3: to to the Muslim migration to Europe and the uh, Latin American migrants who try to come into the uh, U.S. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, so th- what I'd like to stress here is that that there are two versions of this Soros plot. There's a full version which says that he does this, that he's, uh, for example, manipulating and financing migrants to come to Europe or to the U.S., and that he does it because he's a Jew, hmm. because the Jews are trying to rule the world.
1: That's the trope that's
3: been used. And that's the trope and that the Jews are pulling the strings. So this full version of the Soros plot, which includes the Jews, Hmm. exists along with a sort of Soros conspiracy theory in light, where it's not said that it's because he's a Jew or that the Jews are trying to rule the world. It's just George Soros, uh, an American liberal. And that's what Orban would say, and that's what Trump would say. I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just against Soros, and not because he's a Jewish conspirator. But when you look at the uh, conspir uh, sorry the demonstrators in Charlottesville, yeah. the far right demonstrators who chanted, "Jews will not replace us."
1: Yeah.
3: That chant, Jews will not replace us, is only understandable if we realize that what they mean is not that Jews themselves will replace them, Mm. but that Jews will replace them with people of color, especially Muslims. And that's what their so-called replacement theory is, that Jews try to racially replace white people with uh, people of color, especially Muslims. Ooh. Now, so that's the that's the sort of full replacement theory. Yeah. But it's not respectable. You you still can't get anywhere with that uh, if you want to be a mainstream party. Yeah. But if you drop the Jewish part, the voters who would be put off by anti-Semitism will vote for you. But also the extreme right voters will vote for you because they understand that. What what is the subtext of the kind of uh, Islamophobia that uh, I'm referring to?
2: Uh, that's that's very interesting. It's almost as if we've come full circle by discussing all of this. You know, and yet on the other hand, we have, you know, other um, political figures such as Ilhan Umar who have been through this witch hunt of sorts, accused and berated um, of and, and deemed fully anti-semitic um for saying something that you know in in her view um as she as she said has been taken out of context and it was completely unintended yet she went on to apologize Um, so it's very startling to see that sort of juxtaposition of the two cases you know and um i just think it it really points us to the fact that often it's not just what's said but also what's left out of the conversation, that's that's really important.
3: Very much so, and there's a, a political dynamic to this where anti-Semitism as a charge works to even sometimes allow Islamophobia. The logic is anti-Semitism is the worst racism, yeah. And so if you call me a racist because I say things against Muslims, I call you an even bigger racist because you, as I see it, say things about the Jews. I think this is how the Ilhan Omar works can be understood.
2: And and that's also quite interesting. You know, in, in one of your articles, you mentioned how Islamophobia can exist without Muslims when you talked about, um, you know, familiarity, breeding, contempt. So if you could explain a little bit in the context of of your regional study, what you mean by this?
3: So this also takes us back to that question of what's different between East and West. Uh, Because what's different between East Central Europe or all of Eastern Europe uh, and uh, Western Europe uh, or North America is that, The Islamophobia is the same. They say the same things about Muslims, but in the East, there are very few Muslims. It's not true that there are no Muslims because every country I look at has thousands of Muslims, but it's a relatively uh, small communities. And so from this, many people have concluded that East Europeans are particularly and virulently racist. Uh, and that they're predisposed, maybe culturally, some kind of cultural backwardness Mm. to uh, Islamophobia, because look at it, like they don't even have Muslims and still they're uh, ranting against them. But I'd I'd like to really reject that way of looking at things. And I also question if East-West is actually the only or the most important, most relevant distinction here. Of course. And so what I, I focus on is that it's not only in East Central Europe that you find... East Central Europe is not the only example of Islamophobia without Muslims. But we find almost in every country in the world, and certainly in Western countries or Latin America, that Islamophobia is greatest in the countryside Mm
1: -hmm.
3: where there are not many Muslims, Mm -hmm. and much less so in the big multicultural cities. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: So to me, the way we understand Islamophobia without Muslims without, uh, of course, justifying it, but understanding it is the alienation that the sort of peripheral regions of the world find themselves in, Mm -hmm. whether they be in the East or in the West, Mm -hmm. whether it's the countryside in the West or the Rust Belt in the United States, Mm Uh, or it's East Central Europe, where, by the way, we see the same dynamism because there's less Islamophobia in the big cities also in East Central Europe, Mm. like let's say in Prague, than there would be in the Czech villages, than there would be in the villages in the area, or small towns.
1: That's very interesting, and it's probably worth clarifying here what you said about east and west comparison i think it's important like you said the various different intersections of identity as well that it's you know it's not just an issue of um location or a spatial setting class dynamic you know gender social state absolutely all fit into how far anti-semitism and Islamophobia are uh, expressed or manifest and um, you know in, in light of this I think it's worth also saying that um you know what's happening in India is something that is global south as we would call it Absolutely. Islamophobia yeah. and that's that's an entirely different dynamic. Well, there will be overlap, but for now, and for the sake of the brevity of our of our conversation, um, we haven't touched on that, even though it is quite a hot topic at the moment. And
3: then another topic is Islamophobia in China.
1: Exactly. So um, how does that fit into the wider discourse surrounding? Um,
3: uh, so I'm going to put China aside, but India is a very good example of another government in a relatively democratic country, uh, trying to subvert the institutions and establish an authoritarian nationalist Hmm. government. So in that way, uh, I can compare uh, Modi to Orban, and both of them to what Trump would like to be, but hasn't gotten away with it so far. True. And, uh, and, And that is to you know, to have an authoritarian majoritarian regime based on, on on hate.
1: Yeah.
3: And curiously, these are countries that don't completely do away with democracy, but rather they they sort of stack the cards so in elections no one else has a chance. That's that's their goal. Yeah. And they use Islamophobia I mean, I'm afraid that they also really are Islamophobic, but but they use Islamophobia as a strategy to uh, whip up the emotions of the majority. But I think we all recognize that the world has changed. Yeah. So for us in anthropology or political science, sociology and historians, I think the task is to understand what has changed because we're not going to solve it by trying to go back. I think what we need is to find out what brought this out, and I think that what brought this out in large measure is a kind of uh, impersonal globalization based on uh, on, uh, neoliberal sort of financial Mm -hmm. uh, capitalism, and everybody recognizes that we have to put limits on that, and one way to put limits on that is to restore people's sense of community, Uh, sadly, because those are impersonal forces, uh, globalism and neoliberalism, and we need to restore people's sense of uh, community, and sadly, uh, it can be done on a racist islamophobic exclusionary anti-semitic way and mm. i think that that's why these things appeal to people yeah uh, they appeal to majorities in certain countries because it makes them feel like this is our country you know we are all in it together mm. and sometimes that our leader will uh, make sure that those outsiders don't take away from us sure. this sense of community
2: thank you That that's so true what you said about community and being predicated on this sense of belonging and um, that unfortunately can be easily manipulated as is being done and um, you know for us it's about cultivating a sense of community that is inclusive and pluralistic so that we as the masses can um, enjoy it fulfillingly you know it could be something that is for everyone and it's about having faith ultimately that we can achieve what we set out to do what we set out you know what we believe in and we can believe in ourselves so I think it's definitely worth pondering upon and as we move forward not just as academics but also many of our listeners are parts of um, grassroots organizations or advocates of human rights um, educationists and policymakers. So I think these are really fruitful conversations and thought-provoking conversations that we've been having. And um, just a final point um, that any anything that you'd like to mention before we say goodbye.
3: Well, I, I really like Miriam the point that you made about inclusive community, and to go back to what we were chatting about, that also has something to do with the difference between the big cities and uh, and the countryside, and, and without stereotyping too much, we do see uh, more Islamophobia and anti-Semitism in the countryside. But that's also because in the big cities, we already do see uh, an inclusive community. True. I mean, I feel that about my city, Toronto. Yeah. We have all kinds of problems. We have lots of racism. Mm-hmm but what we see happening in hungary or india or in brazil or even in some ways in the united states yeah. seems very strange yeah. uh, to most of us because we are not living in racially or ethnically divisive uh, communities so so i think maybe all of this is actually uh, all of this uh, populism and nationalism racism is maybe actually the swan song of a uh, of a world that's disappearing and not uh, sort of a harbinger of, uh, of the future.
1: Well, that's, that's certainly true of cosmopolitan cities. So, you know, you mentioned Toronto. I think a good way of probably ending is, is mentioning London. And I think one thing yeah. very powerful, so London's the city where I reside and call home. Right. More so than anything, I used to say I'm a citizen of the world, but I, I think I'm much more a Londoner than anything else. And
3: mm-hmm. I think
1: the current mayor, obviously, Sadiq Khan, is a Muslim, British Muslim person. And his quote that will probably, I think, is going to be one of the long-lasting, um, most memorable points of his uh, of his reign <laughs> is, um, "London is open," right? It is yes. It is yes. Inclusive. You know that just saying those three words, London is open, especially in the yeah. climate, the hostile environment that we see ourselves in, and also with the refugee crisis and stuff. Right. You know, they're kind of etched into every Londoner's heart. I feel, and that's probably yeah. why, um, as you mentioned about Toronto, that yes, we're not denying racism exists in our cities, but the power of the love um, and we talked about um, is far greater and stronger and more of a cohesive sort of uh, bandage of sorts on on the potential hate that could manifest and you know keeping it latent as opposed to exposing it entirely
3: right. right yes yes indeed
2: all right and um with that in mind thank you so so much professor for your time and for your thoughts and It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thanks, Marion. What a remarkable man. Some really excellent insights there from Professor Kalmar. I had never quite thought of the intersection between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that he presented there and the the connection between the two in quite that way. I thought that was really important and distinctive.
1: No, you're right. Um, And I think what's important, especially as many of our listeners and, you know, you and I ourselves, we're um, interfaith uh, activists, advocates. And I think in order to really challenge the scrooge of of prejudice and uh, hatred, discrimination, racism, whatever, we need to work together. We need need to stand united, um, you know, against it, because ultimately it may be one group today. It'll be another group tomorrow. So when will it end? How will it end? And um, if we don't collaborate and, and come together uh, in unison, to tackle it. Once we've acknowledged that both anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are equally problematic, it's only then that we can move forward uh, to tackle such hatreds.
0: It's really interesting in a time such as the lockdown and the national emergency that we're going through at the moment that faith communities of all kinds have been really active in that and I know the government's been meeting with faith communities to discuss what contribution they can make and possibly let's hope um, one good thing that can come out of this terrible tragedy is that faith communities do learn how to collaborate and do learn how to engage with society in a new and a more creative way and uh, and actually changes the perspectives within society of of some of the angles and some of the ideas that they might have about Muslim and Jewish and for that matter Christian communities.
1: Yeah no um, as we say in, in our faith you know God willing inshallah that is the case that we do learn from this and we um you know just take the right foot forward and um hope for prosperity and change
0: on that positive note let's draw to a close great talking to you as always uh thanks for everyone we will be back with you very soon
1: take care take care everyone god bless